I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book, our podcast for enthusiastic and engaged readers that will help you discover new books in all genres, give you unique insights into your favorite authors, and bring you up to date with what's happening in the literary world. I recently had the pleasure of speaking to Ann Nelson for her latest book, Suzanne's Children. Anne tells us the incredible heroic story of Suzanne Spock, who risked everything and gave her life to save hundreds of Jewish children from deportation from Nazi-occupied Paris to Auschwitz. This is one of many, many untold stories of the Holocaust, and Anne Nelson does a fantastic job of helping us understand just what was going on in Nazi-occupied Paris. And stay tuned after my interview with Ann Nelson to hear some fantastic book recommendations from the co-founder and president of The Book Reporter, Carol Fitzgerald. But first, my interview with Ann. We are joined today by the award-winning research scholar at Columbia, war correspondent, playwright, screenwriter, and author, Ann Nelson, to discuss her riveting new book, Suzanne's Children, A Daring Rescue in Nazi Paris. Ann consults with many of the leading U.S. foundations, including Gates, Rockefeller, Carnegie, and Knight on international media conflict and human rights, was a war correspondent in Latin America and reported from Eastern Europe and Asia for the New York Times, L.A. Times, BBC, NPR, and PBS, has won many awards, including receiving a Guggenheim Fellowship for her work on media and Nazi Germany. She has now set her considerable, wide-ranging skills on a story of extraordinary courage in the face of evil. She has resurrected from obscurity the life of Suzanne Spock, a remarkable, wealthy, Brussels-born woman who used her prominent status in Nazi-occupied Paris to rescue, shelter, and support Jewish children that were orphaned or left behind after their parents were deported to the concentration camps of Europe. In Miss Nelson's hand, this story of courage is a page-turner, filled with fascinating detailed research on the state of terror that existed in Nazi-occupied Paris, the espionage, and the extraordinary bravery of some, and the astounding complicity with evil of many. As the esteemed editor Diana Antill has written, Everything that makes life worth living is the result of humankind's impulse to fight the darkness in itself and attempting to understand evil is part of that fight. Anne Nelson gives us the ammunition to fight that fight. Anne, thank you for joining us on Just the Right Book. Thank you so much. Anne, so you've got this wild array of talents. What got you interested in resistance in Nazi Germany, which you wrote about in your previous book, uh, Red Orchestra, or now resistors in Nazi Paris through the story of Suzanne Spock? I think that my fundamental drive is just this lifelong thirst to see political systems somehow converge with with my values. Um, <laughs> How's that going for you? <laughs> n- well, you know, it's tough times. What can I say? Um, I, I grew up in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and my elementary schools were segregated, and I've seen a lot of political violence in various settings in my life, and mm. 
I always wish people would behave better. (laughs) And so rather than sit in a corner and get depressed, which is always a temptation, I think I've made a mission of finding people that I find inspiring. Mm. So my play, The Guys, which was written after September 11th, was about a fire captain and, again, the, the personality of the rescuer, the people who see the disaster and don't just decry it, they, they figure out what they can do. And, and so I think that Suzanne Spock has the echo of, of that person who could be a bystander but chose not to. And the thing that was fascinating to me in thinking about uh, her, so she, as I said uh, in the introduction, was a wealthy um, woman from Belgium. Her husband uh, was connected to the hi- the highest political leadership in uh, the country of Belgium. They lived in this gorgeous apartment in Paris. They had Magritte paintings and other esteemed artists on the walls. And with the one quirk of her marriage, which we'll come back to, what was it that drove her to be so courageous. I, I think that she always felt that taking action to help other people was the way to matter. Mm. And you sense this in her life from the time she's, you know, at least an adolescent, maybe before. Remember, she's growing up in this upper class family in Brussels, and they send her to finishing school where she learns to embroider and manage the servants. And she was just never satisfied with that. She, she felt that there were more important things to be done in the world. And from a fairly early age, she was looking at refugees and women's rights and workers' rights and this whole social ferment that you had in Europe in the early 20th century. And so she wanted to feel involved. And when she got truly depressed and paralyzed, it was when she was marginalized. Mm. And and set the stage for us, which you do brilliantly in the book, for the environment in Paris, beginning particularly in late 42 into 43. So the French, remember, had been through World War One, where a huge percentage of their young men were lost. And when the Germans invaded in 1940, they thought they were going to be defended, and they weren't. The French army collapsed. And they feared that they could be decimated the way the Germans were were destroying Poland. So there was a sense of relief that the occupation might be milder, which it was at first. And then the net started to tighten. Uh, and and in, in brief, the Nazis had a plan to rid Western Europe of Jews. The plan evolved over time. The French were quite eager to rid France of immigrants. They had brought immigrants in when they needed labor. Then they became surplus labor and taking jobs that could have gone to French people. And where the overlap happened was the Germans and Vichy France deciding to deport immigrant Jews. So they were the first to be arrested, the first to be deported. And a lot of French people looked the other way, um, partly because it was done with window dressing that said, oh, we're just deporting illegal immigrants back to their home countries, or they're going as slave labor to the way the POWs are. Um, and it really wasn't until the arrest uh, that took place in July 1942 which were known as the Veldiv arrests after the bicycle stadium where the 
people were imprisoned. Mm-hmm. And they arrested 11,000 immigrant Jews, this time young children, pregnant women, elderly people who had no place in a German farm or factory. And this is the moment that really transforms Suzanne Spock from uh, somebody who, who deeply sympathized with the Jewish population to someone who was just mobilized into action. So Suzanne, there, there's, a, there's a quote uh, that I've often referred to, and it was the son of a Nigerian writer who won the Nobel Prize. And in response to a question by someone, did he resent that his father had become a martyr uh, in his protests as a Nigerian, the son answered, all of us have a choice to make our children safe in the world or to make the world safe for our children. And I was struck in thinking about Suzanne. So Suzanne becomes very involved with the underground in carrying forged documents from the country, ultimately arranging her rescue, which we'll talk about, and even involving her children in it. And it made me wonder, was there something not only courageous about her, but almost a little reckless? Did you ever feel that uh, way? Yes, I, 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 I do believe that. Um, and I, I I think you may have been quoting Ken Sarawi, which That's right. And uh, his... Uh, Sarah Wewa's daughter, Na, was one of my students at Columbia, oh, and I invited Ken from Toronto to speak about his father. So I'm very familiar with that mm. story, and you're absolutely right. There's a parallel there. Um, I think in Suzanne's case, what I surmise is that she was told, you know, the immigrant Jews she was working with were living underground in constant danger. Her background as a, from a wealthy Catholic family made her acceptable to the Nazi. Right. She was somebody who could move about freely and had every possible privilege. And I think that she may have taken that too far in her own mind and felt that she was protected. You'd mentioned that I'd been a war correspondent, and one thing I noticed in terms of my own experience is that a kind of adrenaline sets in mm-hmm. where action is driving you, and you don't feel as much fear as perhaps you ought to. Right. Did you feel that way as a correspondent? Yeah, I did. And I I was in El Salvador at a very extreme period of the death squads and the conflict. And I realized that I wasn't afraid enough Hmm. and decided to back out and do other things. Because in those situations, you need to be able to feel fear. And the adrenaline can overwhelm that. You know, my parents are both Holocaust survivors. And um, in listening to my parents over the years, they had a much more nuanced view than American Jews about people that told on a Jewish neighbor or who was brave and who was not brave. You know, there was a German soldier in Auschwitz where my mother was who snuck her bread, uh, and enough bread to contribute probably pretty meaningfully into her survival. But I'm curious, having been both a war correspondent and having written both Red Orchestra and Suzanne's children, do you have an observation about the type of person that becomes courageous or the type of person whose natural instinct to protect their own family, never mind their own life, supersedes any kind of courage they might have on behalf of 
humankind. Yeah, I, I, I do. Um, and, you know, there's such compelling literature about about the camps and Margarete Buben Neumann's memoirs um, are, are fascinating about this because I think you know, a lot of this history depends on where an individual finds right. themselves. And maybe the most brutal camp guard would have been, you know, just a nice auto mechanic in a different exactly. country at a different time. You know, it, it just there are qualities that are brought out by situations and by indoctrination. But I also believe that there are some people who have transcendent qualities, and they're placed in these positions, and they show extraordinary humanity. They they make this choice. Um, I think that's one reason I wrote a play about firemen. You know, they're they're like they're they're uniformed services who save people instead of shooting mm-hmm. at them. You know. Um, but they have a lot of the same way of life and, and style, um, but there's, there's a, a profound quality to what they do. So the other part that is so compelling to me is when a person wakes up in the morning and says, I really don't like what my government is doing, and you have two choices. One is to sit back and wait for other people to deal with it right. <laughs> and take care of your own business, and the other is to put yourself out, even in a way that might be detrimental to your own well-being. Um, and, and so I look at a lot of situations trying to see what makes that difference in people's personal responses. Mm. You can look at today. Right. We feel, I feel very badly for Syrian refugees. I'm not even sure what I can do for them. Sometimes what I do in the public sphere seems so trivial as to mm. be worse than meaningless. Do you go ahead and do it and then look away, look for a way to expand that footprint? And I have to say, we live in a country where a quarter of the people can't even bring themselves to vote. So we have a lot of opportunities to expand our life in the public sphere. <laughs> well, you know, and you bring up a, is an example that I use as a sticky point for myself in thinking about it, because my parents were in DP camps. They were in displaced person camps in Germany after the war. So... When I see refugees from Vietnam or Syria or any other war-torn country in these refugee camps, I don't see what I think others want to see, which is, well, they were in bad circumstances anyway. This is just another form of a bad circumstance. I see, you know, the butcher, the baker, the teacher who would risk anything to try to bring their family to safety. And I often wonder, well, what are you doing, Roxanne? Just what are you doing other than maybe talking about this at a cocktail party or, you know, talking with someone like you about it? So the choice, you know, the choices that we make along the way as caring people always scares me as not being enough. Yet, why don't we come up with solutions to that? You know, do we, well, let me leave it at that before I ask the next question, because I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. There's never enough. Mm. We can never save the world. And of course, there is a saying that if you save one person, you save the world. Yeah. So, when I wrote Red Orchestra, people would say, well, they didn't overthrow Hitler, did they? And Well, they did everything they possibly could to do it, and many of them gave their lives. What more can you ask of them? Right. And I also feel, as somebody who writes history, reads history, cares about history, that it's extremely important to leave a record of the people who tried. Yeah. If you have something terrible that occurs in history, and everybody in the country appears to have gone along with it or supported it, then it's worse. 
if there's evidence that people struggled against it, it gives you more hope. And so, you know, again, with Suzanne Spock, well, she saved a few, her network saved a few hundred Jewish children. Did that stop the Holocaust? No. But on the other hand, I've, I've spent time with some of the children her network saved. And right. They had lives. So we have to we have to invest ourselves in the art of the possible. Mm-hmm. I'd like to talk to you about two sets of your interviews. So Suzanne and her husband, Claude, had two children uh, who were youngsters uh, during the time of occupied Paris and Suzanne's activities. And you interviewed them extensively uh, as part of the research for uh, your work. Tell us about them. Well, I actually was able to do the book because of her daughter, um, who was named Lucy, but always went by the nickname of Pilette. I found her in 2009 when she was a knitting instructor in suburban Maryland, 83 years old. Hmm. And I just had a wisp of an idea of who her mother was, but enough to be curious. Um, she was incredibly generous and and really wanted the world to know about her mother and to have the record corrected, because what little was known about her was false. Um, so I must have interviewed her, I've counted once, it was something like three dozen times over the years. And I also was able to interview her brother several times and several cousins, just really striving to find people who could have immediate personal memories um, to add to the historical record that I was able to find elsewhere. When had she moved to America? She had moved to America in when she was in her 20s, um, which would have been in the 1950s. Right. And um, her father is not the hero of the story. No, he's not. We're going <laughs> to no, get to him in not. a minute, Anne. I, I wasn't a fan uh, of his. Pardon? I was not a fan. No, it's hard to be. Um, I mean, I think that he had, like everyone, his virtues. But um, she had, I think she came to America partly to just create a new life. Yeah. And as a writer, I was just so lucky because her recall of this period was extraordinary. Um, I tried to check out every possible detail that she told me in published sources and archives, and it, it just really checked out. And I can only think that this period in her life, when she was in her teens, was so vivid and in some cases so traumatic that it was just burned into her memory, which which can happen. Um, and then she's also this extraordinary personality very vibrant, funny, um, and and with all kinds of stories. At one point, she had applied for U.S. citizenship, and the Immigration Service asked her whether she'd ever been arrested. So she fills out the form and says, yes, by the Gestapo in 1943. (laughs) And they write back and say, sorry, we can't process you until you send us the full court records. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Talk about auto-reply. Yeah. I'm sorry, the Germans destroyed them before they left town. <laughs> How did she feel about her mother? Uh, she she adored her mother. I'm not saying that when she was a teenager, she didn't have a teenager's relationship with her mother, but she admired her. I have a daughter who's in her 20s now, so this was very resonant with me. Uh, as a young teen, she was critical of her mother's fashion sense. Um 
I had actually a wonderful time writing this book from a woman's perspective. It's not just World War II battles and tanks. It's about what it's like to live as a woman in a period of conflict and to try to take meaningful action. Mm. And as a writer, I feel like 50% of the population has been left out of the history book. Yeah. And did she realize the kind of danger that she was in, she the daughter? I don't think so. Mm. I think, you know, in at the time of the biggest rescue, she was would have been 15. And her mother had her doing uh, errands that could have easily gotten her charged with treason. It certainly could have gotten her in trouble. I will say say that her mother was counting on the fact that her two very blonde, very blue-eyed children who spoke perfect French would not be high on the Germans' radar. And uh, she was right, uh, and it was her mother who placed her family in danger through her humanitarian action. The other thing that was striking in reading the book and seeing the kind of networks that Suzanne was involved in was this kind of instinctive trust that the resistors had to put in people who would agree to um, support their efforts, house the children, move the children. How did they go about making those decisions? And I don't recall any instance in in which that trust went undeserving. Yeah, well, there are several passages that deal with that in different situations. Um, And certainly, like the first resistance group I talk about, uh, the Musée de l'Homme, was broken up because it was infiltrated by an informer. Um, I did not ever see that Suzanne's rescue network was infiltrated and broken up. Yeah, that was the one I was thinking about. But the Jewish organization it was connected to had a young Jewish woman who was a parent, whose parents had been deported, who was apparently a police informer, mm. Katia Laroquine, whom I write about. I think she may be in the footnotes, but I thought it was an extraordinary she story. She is, yeah. And so... So the the Jewish group Suzanne Spock was working with had to go underground because of that betrayal. Um, so it was just a constant, constant danger. Um, I think in general, the networks that were made up of women did pretty well. Inter- better than women's the... associations. Interesting. I'm generalizing there, and I could be accused of bias. But that's just what the research seems to indicate, that that women who raised their children together and knew each other um, had different bonds of trust. Mm. You know, it's an interesting question, Anne, whether um, in the underground in France during World War II, were, were the number of informants among men, male-based resistors markedly different than those of female resistance organizations, like the ones that Suzanne was involved in. I think one indicator is that a lot of the women's organizations were built on pre-existing organizations. Mm. They didn't come together for this. Well, yeah, they they existed before the war. So, for example, there's this marvelous Jewish woman, Sophie Schwartz, um, and she had been a Jewish community organizer with with immigrant women, and, you know, they had a very vibrant society. She was one of my heroes. Isn't she great? Oh, God, I loved her. 
I just loved her. I love her. Sophie. I yeah. loved Sophie. Um, and, and, you know, the picture of her is just so, she's so full of life. And, oh, what, what a temptation she must have had for despair. Yeah. And yet she was unstoppable. And lived till 95. Yeah, yeah. And so she had these groups before the war where these immigrant Jewish women would have the equivalent of sewing circles and book clubs and and uh, daycare uh, groups. And so those groups were converted into these activist organizations under the occupation. The same thing with the rich ladies in Entrée Temporaire, mm. the wives of businessmen and and doctors and, uh, you know, both. And it was Catholic, Protestant, and Jewish. And they'd all done their ladies' aid society work before the war, and they converted straight into the support for the rescue network. And I can't think of a single security problem among either one of those two groups. And 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 before I go on to another set of questions, just to mention for us the number of foreign Jews and um, French Jews that were, in fact, deported, many of them, if not most of them, ultimately to Auschwitz, and the number of children under the age of 15 that were rounded up and that Suzanne and the group that Suzanne rescued. Yeah, um, so the numbers are not totally hard and fast. Um, but, you know, although this topic is rightly front and center for us in, in our historical interest, it wouldn't have been in France at the time. France had about 40 million people, of whom just over 300,000 were Jewish. Mm. So that's less than 1%. Tiny. And the 300,000 were roughly evenly divided between immigrant Jews, mostly from Eastern Europe, who would have spoken Yiddish, Polish, and Russian, and would have been visibly different, right? Um, more working class in general, right. um, whereas the what they called the traditional French Jews would speak perfect French, went to French schools, were heavily represented in the professions. So there was a social divide, and sometimes there were social tensions between them. Um, more of the traditional French Jews would be, say, Reformed Jewish. Right. Um, more of the immigrants would either be Orthodox, uh, some Hasidic, and some very political leftist uh, and atheist and communist. Yeah. So these two groups, I, I think that part of what the triumph of... Suzanne and Sophie's network was even bringing together the Jews as well right. as the Jews with the communist with the the Protestants and the Catholics. Yeah, because the French Jews strike me as comparable to the highly assimilated German Jews who assumed they would be above any sort of elimination of Jews in general. I think you see that parallel all over occupied Europe. Um, and again in Germany uh, there were many German Jews who were decorated veterans from World War One, mm. who were, in fact, uh, oppressed later than the immigrant Jews. Um, and in France, the Vichy government took very dramatic action to protect its traditional French-born Jews who were French citizens. That's that's obvious. And the percentage of them who were deported is is a fraction of the percentage of the immigrant Jews. So this is this is also an immigration story. Yeah. 
that 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 was very striking to me because it seemed as if French Jews, native French Jews, uh, because if I recall the statistic from your book, under 15 percent of them were ultimately deported. So it seems as if French Jews, even if they were wearing the Star of David, were sort of hiding in plain sight in Paris. Is that a fair... Uh, in, in not in all cases, but in many. Um, there were over 30,000 traditional French Jews living in Paris with their, their addresses registered. And, you know, if the occupation had gone longer and the Nazis had had their way, I'm fairly certain they would they have too. Yeah. rounded up. But the Vichy government, uh, I mean, this is just, you know, a very... Uh, dramatic story. The reason that they started deporting immigrant Jewish children was in order to spare right. the male adult French Jews from being deported on the same convoys. Right. So to clarify for our listeners, the Germans started giving quotas to the Vichy government, and, and they didn't sort of care about what made the bodies up. They just wanted that number of bodies. So as you're saying, in order not to turn over French Jews, they had to start turning over immigrant Jewish children. That, that's right. In the beginning, and really actually throughout the deportations, the window dressing was, we are sending able-bodied men to perform labor. And there were even publications that were sent to the Jewish community talking about recruiting these workforces. So it made a certain kind of sense with that kind of propaganda. And then by late, mid to late 1942, when they're supposed to be sending a convoy of men as a workforce and they start sending three-year-old children, the veil is stripped away. Mm. The the one person we haven't had the time to discuss, and maybe we will in another conversation, will be another book, is Leopold Trepper, who was either a really good guy or a complicated guy or just a plain-out bad guy? I think my friends in the English department would call him an anti-hero. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was such a complicated creature in terms of his good work, but ultimately his complicity. Yeah, and... You know, there's always this argument of first you have to win the war, then you can worry about the mm. little people. Yeah. And he was just the epitome of, of that. that because he just, I, I understand how he contributed to the war effort, but he just left such a trail of, of corpses in his path. Well, and the other piece of, of, of that, so he was, uh, for purposes of our listeners, essentially a Russian spy who was part of the... Uh, resistance. But I think the fact that he never turned over Suzanne Spock's name because he saw her and her husband, Claude, as potentially useful to him after the war um, as a mischievous indication of him being an anti-hero. Yeah, and I, or as I've been pursuing these these works, I I do make a distinction between espionage and resistance. Mm -hmm. um, and he was he, in the espionage. He was in the he was in the espionage business. He was one of the few professionals in the picture, and he was a consummate professional. And that also, the, the, you know, there were various 
professional spies floating around Europe. And one way you can tell is that they get along with each other, right? Mm. When he's arrested by the Gestapo, they sit down and have coffee and They're have a like good, good chat about their tradecraft. <laughs> right. He's well, never tortured. He actually lives pretty well. And then they just they sit down and start to swap. And, okay, that's what professional spies mm. do, I suppose. I've never been one. Well, you know, Anne, but, that's a really good – I'm glad you made that point because I think that distinction of espionage to resistance is an important one. And I think people like myself who are not necessarily that immersed might conflate them and that's a big mistake to conflate them. They're quite different. Yeah, and, and the people that I consider to be in the resistance have, have are operating out of a moral vision of some kind. And so there's actually conflict between espionage and resistance because the resistance people are out putting out flyers and rescuing right. victims. And the espionage people are saying, that's just going to attract attention. <laughs> you know, cut it out. Right. And that came through in Red Orchestra, my last book, as well as this one. Unfortunately, because there is so much uh, for us to uh, talk about, and the book, I just think you did a brilliant job of disclosing the complexity of a circumstance like Nazi-occupied Paris. And, you know, going back to that uh, quote from Diana Antill about attempting to understand evil is part of our capacity to fight the darkness or light the darkness. Um, I really want to thank you for um, engaging us in this discovery of this woman and the history of that time because, unfortunately, I think as Daniel Borstein, the historian, once said that Planning for the future without studying history is like planting cut flowers. Um, <laughs> I, I think I've got that close to um, correct. And so I think understanding what people can do and what they um, avoid at their peril is an important element of history for us to understand. I couldn't agree with you uh, So more. one last question that I love to ask authors. What's the book that changed your life, Anne? I think it would be homage to Catalonia. Mm, because? Because Orwell went into a very, a very intense experience in the Spanish Civil War, and he was able to maintain his perspective as a writer and maintain his moral vision while being critical and analytical of all of the turbulent political forces around him. Mm. And there's this period where he looks into the face of a young volunteer and just kind of sees the universe in it. It's this moment of profound sympathy at the same time that he has his entire political, analytical skills at their sharpest. Mm. So when I read that in college, I, I said, oh, that's how to do it. <laughs> given, given the world today, that might be an interesting book to reread. Absolutely. George Orwell always gives good value. Yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. And I really want to thank you for giving us your time on Just the Right Book. It's been fascinating to have a conversation with you. The pleasure of reading this book and understanding the heroicness of uh, Suzanne Spock, because I think resurrecting her is one way of lighting the darkness, right? Uh, she's a hero for us to appreciate uh, that heroes do exist. Yeah, and when I started eight years ago, I had no idea how timely it would feel. Mm, yeah. 
I know. Well, thank you so much, Anne. I really appreciate your time. Thanks again to Ann Nelson. Now let's hear from Carol Fitzgerald from The Book Reporter, who tells us what book she's loving right now. Have you ever craved a good book and just not been inspired by anything you see or felt annoyed because you bought a book that wasn't that great or closed a book and just wanted to talk about it or wished you had a place to discover new books? Well, we know what that feels like, and The Book Report Network aims to solve these reader dilemmas. They've got thoughtful book reviews, compelling features, in-depth author profiles and interviews, excerpts on the hottest new releases, contests, access to galleys. Whenever I open the book reporter, I find it's almost like a short story or a novella because you learn about what Carol Fitzgerald, who's the intrepid co-founder and president of Book Reporter, is working on. You find out what she's reading. It, It just has everything. Like if you're a reader, you just need to get this all the time so you know what's going on. Plus, then you know what Carol's doing, which is traveling around, finding authors. So with that, Carol, I'd love to welcome you to Just the Right Book. Oh, Roxanne, it's so nice to be here speaking with you today. Thank you for that lovely intro. Well, I do love, when I get the book reporter, I am amazed at how much you get packed in. Who who are all the munchkins working on that? (laughs) You know, it's interesting. We have a staff, believe it or not, we produce six websites with five people. And that also includes that we build websites for authors. I have an extremely dedicated, extremely smart staff. We don't have a lot of meetings. And instead, we just all know what the mission is, what we're going to do, and we just get out and get it done. We have one meeting once a week. That's it. And from there on, everybody just knows this is where we're going to be on track. This is what we're going to do. And we discuss ideas as they come up during the week. I have a fabulous editorial director, Tom Donatio, who works with our uh, reviewers. We have volunteer reviewers around the country, 75 of them at least. And we've had some of them working for us for 20 years. So they volunteer and do reviews for you? Yes. Wow. Yes. And what we do is we send out a review list every month, and they actually select what they're going to review. So instead of places that assign a review out, we know that we have somebody who's very interested in X author. And as a result, they may have read all their work so they can compare this book because they've been reading them for years. Right. Or they're discovering somebody new. I mean, I always think there's like an army of people producing it. And it sounds like in some ways there's a little army. There's a little army. And there's a little army that's really tenacious about what we're doing. I mean, some of the things that you're talking about, my life and whatever, it gives the site a personality. Yeah. When I go to events, I meet people. I meet our readers. I get ideas from them. I hear what they're talking about. I hear what their frustrations are. I hear what they're loving. And as a result, if you incorporate that in, it's like you're hearing from a friend instead of some anonymous source. Yeah. And then usually Friday night, email starts coming in to me of people responding. And I answer that email all weekend. So Carol, do you work every day? Yes, I work every day. And Fridays I work at home because it's too busy a day. And you know, too, because you own your own business, your mind is constantly going. Yeah. Carol, you've been doing this for 21 years. What have you found is a change in what a reader wants or is looking for or how they approach what they want? I think what we're seeing is People are trying to discover books at a time where there are fewer places to go out and discover them. Mm-hmm. And when they're out and they're looking for books, they're, they're trying to not make bad decisions about what they're doing, but yet at the same time, they're looking to 
find something that's going to excite them, something that they're going to want to be able to go out to others and talk about. The good part is that you can engage in conversations with far-flung people. I'll give you an example. When we first started uh, the website, we had a chat room called Bookachino. I actually thought that Starbucks might come up with a coffee called Bookachino. So seeing the commerce, you know, possibilities of naming the room this. (laughs) And we had a group of readers that came in there and they started talking about books. And they were talking about Janet Ivanovich, and my business partner and I did not know who that was. And they wanted a chat room dedicated talking about a book called The Sparrow. And we were not familiar with that book. And that's when we realized that the thing we could do most is listen to the readers Mm. and hear what they were talking about and see what we could learn from them. And some of those original chat hosts still are friends. They still get together. And I found that pretty incredible, that these far-flung relationships were made for these people all around the country. So what we did is we put our word-of-mouth session where people could write in and talk about the books that they're reading, assign them a rating, and just give us a couple lines of what it's about, and then enter to win prizes. Million six. I mean, that's a huge number of visitors that you're getting. I assume a lot of that is repeat. A lot of it is repeat, and they're coming back multiple times. There is one woman who actually tells us that she has printed out the newsletters through the years in notebooks and highlights what she has read going back. I am not kidding, which is you know, fabulous to me that there was that kind of um, excitement of what's going on. What people have written and said, my TBR list was added like eight or ten books this week just by sitting and reading the newsletter. Carol, how did you first fall in love with books? Oh, I fell in love with books when I was a little child. In fact, my mom will tell you that they installed a silent switch in my bedroom because when I got up at 4 o'clock in the morning and started reading, they didn't want to hear the light click. But books were always my big interest. I always read. I read for pleasure when I was in college. Um, I took classes where you'd read a book a week and write a paper about it. And it was always a passion of mine. So you were a Condé Nast for 17 years? I was a Condé Nast for 17 years, yes. And the heyday, you... the heyday of Condé Nast. I... We went from five magazines to 15 while I was there. And wh- which magazine did you work on, Mademoiselle? I was at Mademoiselle Magazine the whole time, the one that actually published great fiction. Two years on the editorial side and then 15 years on the business side. You know, I don't think I knew you were there that long. And then where'd you go from Condé Nast? Started this started this the following year. And in fact, it was very interesting because our original concept for the book report was going to be um, videos that would run in Barnes and Noble bookstores. So that when this was the heyday, when the stores were really big. And so what we felt is people could come into the stores while you're sitting in the cafe, you'd watch this video and you would be able to learn about these authors because here's was the big thing for us at the time. No one knew about authors. What you knew was on the back of the book. It said, so-and-so lives in San Francisco with his wife and his dog. That's all you knew. (laughs) And what we felt is people wanted to get to know the authors. So you've got to put your head back in 1995 when we were conceptualizing this, 96 when we were launching. That was a lifetime ago of what you really had online of where you were learning about authors. What I always say is the book reporter got started because... Uh, Barnes and Noble said no. So yeah. uh, we, we went on and we started on America Online with one site and grew from there. And and who knew back then, you know, so Barnes and Noble in those days was considered the arch enemy of mm-hmm. independence and now feels like our best buddy. Exactly. Exactly. Because you're they're giving, as you are, a place for people to go and talk about books, learn about books, and see about them in an environment. And also... It's to hear from other people. All right. So speaking of books, 
Mm-hmm. What books are you loving? I seem to be looking at thrillers and historical fiction. These are the two like, you know, huge passions of mine. Right now, I'm actually, I'm just picked up and I'm started reading Code Girls, which is a story about the American women who are the code breakers of yep. World War II. Um, it's by Liza Mundy. And I think this is like the hidden figures kind of a story. These women who were very, very big during the war, but no one really knew about them. But now they're able to tell their stories because they were told to keep it a secret for so long. Loving, you know, a book like that. I'm listening. Um, and I listen a lot because I have this ridiculous commute into the city every day, Manhattan Beach by Jennifer Egan. Right. And I am loving the different voices on this book. I'm loving the story being told to me as I'm making my drive. Once again, it's set around the time of World War II, and it's this young woman, again, doing something that's very different as um, she's becoming a Navy diver. And the whole story of what was going on in the culture that was surrounding that at this time. And I'm finding that very interesting, and I like listening. It's a different book for Jennifer Egan. You know, it's sort of an old-fashioned, historical fiction book. Exactly. I actually had the opportunity to see her present at a Simon & Schuster preview a couple of weeks ago. And I was so interested to hear how she had done her research. And knowing her other books, this was such a departure. Mm. And I was so interested to hear what she found behind the scenes, what she was interested in. And to try to be able to convey that to our readers is something that's interesting to me. I mean, I'm constantly looking for television clips or any kind of interview so I can give them the backstory on why the author took this direction. And why did she take this direction? She had heard the stories about what was going on in Brooklyn during those years, and she actually found some of the original people who were the divers and went out and interviewed them about what their careers had been like. And they were thinking back on this time because, you know, when the men came home, they went back to doing what they were doing around the house. And it was very interesting to hear what she had been able to actually glean from these people from having conversations with them of what their lives were like, what their um, what, what it was like to be on this naval yard and be in these places putting on these suits and what they were doing. And what thriller are you reading? Oh, it's called Need to Know. It's Need to Know by Karen Cleveland. She is an ex-CIA agent, and she has written a thriller that is a compulsive read. They told me I would read it in four hours, and they were completely right. Wow. It's coming out January 23rd. What it is is this woman comes home uh, one day, and she's been looking for this Russian operative, and she's been looking on her computer all day, and a face comes up, and she knows that face, and she knows the face very well. Mm. And I don't want to give away too much more about it, but if you're a fan of the Americans on FX, you're going to love this book. Great. Did you ever read a book called Disclaimer? No, I didn't. Oh, my God. Wait, wait, wait who's the author of Disclaimer? Wait. I think Renee Knight. Yes, I did not read that. Oh, I would pick it up, Carol. So the book starts... A woman, you know, has books on her nightstand. Uh, She picks up a book that she doesn't think was there. She doesn't even know how it got there. And uh, the normal disclaimer that's in the front of a fiction book saying any resemblance to anybody alive is, you know, accidental. And in this case, it's crossed out. It's got a line through it. And she starts reading it, and she realizes it's a story of something that happened 25 years ago, and the only other person that knows that story is dead. Wow. I don't know of anything she wrote before or since, since. but mm. it was riveting. I love the escape of a book like that. Yeah. And here's the other thing I think that we all need to be doing, is putting our smartphones down and mm. reading. The weekends this summer that I left my phone in the house— And I went outside 
and sat by the pool and read were the most relaxing weekends mm. of the entire summer. Yeah. Because I wasn't looking at, forget politics, because I don't even talk about politics. It was just, if I'm sitting there and I see that I need a new porch, uh, a new patio chair, I look up where I can go get it. I look up what I'm going to make for dinner. I look, if you put the phone down and you walk mm. away, you have such a different experience of the weekend because you can just relax and enjoy the book. Well, I do think that's a really good point because when I imagine or experience the most perfect moment for me, I am at our house in Maine that overlooks the Bagaduce River and the Penobscot, and I bring out five or six books because I don't know exactly which mood I'm going to be in. I do not take the house phone. I do not take my smartphone. Literally makes it blissful. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to find that these days, just bliss. It, it's hard to find, and it's, it's also to find a book that surprises you. Like, I read a book a couple of weeks ago called The Dirty Book Club. And I was like, am I going to like this book? I'm not into erotica, blah, blah, blah. And it's based on a group of women in the 60s who started a book club. And they decided they were going to read books that were a little bit naughty mm-hmm. and get out of all the lifestyle mores that were in their lives right now. Okay? So they start reading these books. And they start writing a, a little piece that goes in each of these books. And flash forward, the last of their husbands has passed away. They're moving to Paris. And they all take off, and they want to keep the book club going. And they each look for women to put into this book club. And they give them that these are the books that you should read. You all need to be at every meeting. They start to read why these books matter to these people from a sociological point of view Hmm. more than anything else and what was happening in their lives at the time. And you start to see that there are parallels between the generations. Very interesting, smart, and fun story. You know, it's funny because I saw that book and Mm -hmm. I didn't pick it up and I thought, well, that that doesn't have any appeal. But now that you're describing it that way, it sounds a little more compelling. And it's smart and fun and funny. And I put it down and I was like, whoa, that's very different. That's a completely different book than, you know, something that I would, you know, think about picking up. I also love books where I learn things. Yeah, so do I. Like, uh, Before We Were Yours. And I found out what was happening with, you know, people taking children out of their homes and putting them up for adoption and what was happening. And this was a real-life thing that was happening in Tennessee that I didn't know anything about. Moments like that are the ones that become very interesting to me. Yeah. Because then I feel like, wait, I want to know more about that topic. Or I want to be able to go out and discuss it with somebody. You know, I always say that we read to be entertained, Mm -hmm. distracted, learn, or live in somebody else's shoes. And any one of them are right, depending on the moment. Exactly. And it's also, I like to know sometimes the backstory on an author and how they came to a story. The book that I've been crazy about, that I actually heard the author tell me he was going to write starting 10 years ago, he came up to me at a party and he said, I think I found this story, and if this works, I think I'm going to have a really big book on my hands. And I was like, okay, and I never ask authors for more. Like, I'm not one of those people, what are you working on now, blah, Mm -hmm. blah, blah. And every time I saw him for 10 years, he was telling me about this book. The book came out in May, and it's called Beneath the Scarlet Sky. And it's the, um, a fictionalized story of a guy named Pino Lello who lived during World War II in Italy and what happened in the war there and what his role was as a young Italian teenager helping to save Jews, carrying them on his back over the mountains into Switzerland 
then actually becoming a Nazi so that he could drive for this general and find out what the um, Germans were doing. Fascinating story. Wow. It took him 10 years to write it. You know, it's interesting because one of the people I just interviewed was Ann Nelson, who wrote a book called Suzanne's Children mm-hmm. about uh, nonfiction about a non-Jewish woman in Paris who was in the resistance and what she did to literally save a hundred lives by by tricking uh, the orphanage that they were at and about to be shipped off to a concentration camp in the east and got them placed and forged papers and all. I mean, the amount of heroics yes. Uh, yes. that we're starting to, you know, the stories have always been there, but some of these new stories, it sounds like, uh, you know, what Beneath the Scarlet Sky was about or what Ann Nelson was writing about, you know, because of it, of course, makes you think about, gee, how heroic or brave would you be where your exactly. life was at risk or your children's life was at risk? So I do love understanding and learning about those circumstances. Like, it, I think that Chris and Hannah had a line with something about in war, we find out who we really are. Mm, I hope we don't have to find out, Carol. No, I hope so, too. Also, she has a new book coming out in February, I think February 6th, I'm crazy about, that's who called does? The Great Alone. Kristen Hannah. Kristen Hannah's The Great Alone is coming, and it is about Alaska, and it starts in 1974. I've always wanted to go to Alaska, want to go even more after reading this, but really what it was like when it was more of a primitive place. Yeah. And um, a young girl moves up there with her father, who's a Vietnam vet, who has a lot of baggage, and they're really escaping to go to Alaska to find a better life. It's a real story of this girl coming of age, living up in Alaska, but it's also what was happening to the whole place up there. And when you think about it, 74 to now, how much different the place of Alaska is. Yeah. It's so rural, so rustic. I'm one of those people who has... It's not on my bucket list to get to Alaska. I don't know why. It's not? No. No. It's I don't know that why. One is on mine. <laughs> I feel that way about Hawaii and Alaska. <laughs> I don't know. Those are two places you, you're not as interested. Where would, you, where would you go? I'd like to go to Japan. Okay. I'd like to go to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Somehow I've got it in my head that I've got to get to Cornwall, England. Okay. I don't know I could do Vietnam and Cambodia with you. I've heard nothing but good things about that. And I also would do Australia and New Zealand. All right. Oh, yeah, I would like to go there, too. Yeah, we can go there after Vietnam. All right. So before we run out of time here, Carol, one of the books, one of the questions I like to ask is, what's the book that changed your life? You know, there was a book that I read when I was young, and it was called A Trace of Footprints by Ruth Wolf. Mm-hmm. It is woefully out of print for years, but I read this book so many times when I was growing up, and there was just something, There was it was a love story, it was a story of a young man with his grandfather. His wife had um, left him, and he was trying to figure out what was going on in his life, and it was this last summer with his grandfather. When I started the company, I told people I was looking for this book, and one of my readers found it for me on an out-of-print site and sent it to me. Mm. And it still sits on my shelf, and there was something about this character in it, Adair, that I absolutely loved. Have you reread it? Yes, I have, and it holds up. Wow. It holds up. I just loved this story. I can't even it was look i was i was a teenager it's got a little bit of like a love and separation and all those kinds of things in it but it was just this beautiful story about this boy's relationship with his father his grandfather as well 
And I think because I'm very lucky my parents are still alive and we have good relationships like that, I just think the book has continued to resonate with me for that reason as well. That's great. Well, Carol, I really want to thank you for taking the time to be on Just the Right Book. I really want to thank you for, you know, you and your small army that uh, produced the book reporter because I think it 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 does what we all need, and that is continue to get people excited about all the great things that are out there to read. So thank you for being that part of the book industry. And thank you for reading bookreporter.com on Friday nights. I love that you read the newsletter. <laughs> I it do. I my love day. it. I'm thinking of you as I'm writing it now. <laughs> Thanks again to today's guests. Suzanne's Children is available now, and for a complete list of all the books we talked about today, just go to bookpodcast.com. Next week, I will be interviewing Matthew Weiner, the creator of the hit drama series Mad Men. And Matthew has a new book, a riveting new book, out called Heather the Totality. If you have any questions that you would like to ask Matthew, please email us at info at justtherightbookpodcast.com or message us on Facebook or Twitter. If I use your question, you win a gift certificate for Just the Right Book subscription service, which is a personalized book of the month program. You won't even have to worry about what you're going to read next. All our genius booksellers will pick out Just the Right Book for you. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Many thanks to our sound engineer, Pat Keogh, and our producer, Christina Torres. Thank you all so much for listening.